Welcome to the Cine Meh Podcast, a place to discuss and deconstruct perfectly average movies. Not good movies, not bad movies, just fine movies. So fine, in fact, you probably forgot they even exist. We're your hosts. I'm Ryan. I'm Joshua. And while we may not be nearly as forgettable as these films, we probably run a close second. That's right. Adequate films for adequate folk. Josh, what do you got for me today? like a real semi-professional studio and we've got like a team in the booth, you know, and like they're counting us in. Yeah. We need a, we need more, we need more of that. We need some PAs. Uh, (laughs) I need a guy that's doing the finger count. I need a guy bringing me my coffee. Yes, Uh, exactly. Hey, hey, somebody bring up the next tear sheet, please. Can we go to a two? A (laughs) two. I found a thing online that was like, uh, stop, being a TikTok influencer, we need more gaffers in cinema. And it's just like all these screenshots of series lately that are just these dark with like poor lighting and like all these things. Oh, uh, that's excellent. I, I, I mean, hey, yeah, the world needs gaffers. Like, I don't hate on it. Gaffers are great. They, they provide an important function. I don't think people really appreciate how much of a difference lighting makes in I, I think people are starting to. Well, after the Battle of the Bastards or whatever. The, what was the one, the the night battle or something in uh, Game of Thrones where everybody was like, this episode was dark. And I was like, isn't Game of Thrones like tonally oh, dark? Oh, it was like the, the, the big battle with the, the White Walkers. Yeah. And everybody and was stuff. like, no, it's actually just like too dark to see. Like yeah, it was, it wasn't which was probably a cheap way out because they were like, we've spent so much money already and uh, this is supposed to be a big deal, but we just, it's not going to live up to the high, just dim it. Just just make it, Look, make it low night. lighting and just shake the camera around a lot. We only need uh, two or three like really cool sequences. Uh, just make it look chaotic. I mean, they they were not going to get the Two Towers technology, right? Like, they weren't going to get that. There's no reason why they couldn't have, though. I well, HBO. They they threw a lot of money at Game of Thrones. They did, and the Two Towers, you know, came out 20 years ago. Like, I feel like that technology's got to be pretty cheap right now. I bet I could run it on my my MacBook. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) We should. Uh, Lego put out the Rivendell set, which I very much... I very much want that. Lovely. Yes. It's it's too much money, but I want it. Uh, But I also need a a Helm's Deep one. And it needs to be one of those sets that you can, like, deconstruct. Yes. Like, it's built to, like, come apart at certain places so you can see the progression of the battle. Yeah, so you can blow up the wall when the berserker gets there. And, yeah. You can be like, oh, what's this track for? Oh, that's for Legolas to surf down on a shield. (laughs) (laughs) It's just your little Lego Legolas. Lego Legolas is the greatest thing ever. Love that. Legolas. I'm also not entirely unconvinced that Breath of the Wild didn't steal shield surfing directly from that scene. Oh, I'm I'm very certain. I I think they looked at that and yes. they were like, "Let's let's not only have this mechanic, let's make it actually integral to several of the challenges in this game." <laughs> yes. For more Lord of the Rings and uh, Zelda discussion, folks, make sure you check out our other podcast series, Morning Radio. Uh, we we have uh, some discussion of that and various other things. And this right. one is about movies. It is. It is. I mean, we're we're kind of talking about movies, but in a 
abstract way. It's not the movie that we're talking about today, though. It's, it's not, not by a close. long shot. Not by a long shot. <laughs> no. So today's episode, we have uh, our Nick Cage movie for the season. It could happen to you, which I am calling Simply Irresistible Part 2. We are going to have to discuss uh, some parallels with Simply Irresistible. Um, but the good thing is, uh, right off the bat, I'll, I'll spoil it for you. This is there's no magic. There's no magic movie. Thank goodness. Because when Isaac Hayes pops up as the narrator and when he straight up (laughs) says at one point that his name is Angel, I was like, oh, boy. And and he opens the movie with Once Upon a Time. Yep. And I was like, I was like, it's Once Upon a Time. The theme music opens and it also it. It, the first like opening few notes, yeah, it made me think of like a Bond theme, but then it goes <laughs> cheery and peppy. I was like, oh, okay, never mind. Yeah, exactly. And then he's like, once upon a time. Yep. Uh, another movie, by the way, sticking with our theme this season, uh, apparently, which is love letters to New York. A huge love letter to New- how? Like, yeah, that, again, not intentional, but in one way or another, the connective tissue for for the season has largely been. Love Letters to New York. We have had several movies now set and, like, heavily set in New York City. And a lot of movies, they get set in New York or L.A. Or, you know, we're starting to see in recent decades, you know, spreading out from that more and more. Yeah. Um, But they, a lot of movies would be set in, like, two or three places. So, and, and I've been reflecting on this because I... In a, it, I want to bring this up as a discussion point in our other podcast, but it's it's apt here. I just finished reading The War of the Worlds, and I realized that one of the reasons that I struggled with this book is because he's constantly like, and then I exited upon Thames and proceeded over to Devonshire, and straight up the street was Leatherhead, and I was like, I don't know what the fuck any of these places are. You know, I mean, they're all like little tiny suburbs in London that he's constantly referencing. And I feel like movies in, that are like super proud to be set in New York do exactly this thing, where like they they're hyper specific about where in New York City the different events take place. And I'm sure that if you live in New York City and you are you know well acquainted with it, the movie like you're like oh yeah this and I and I know this and I know that. But like for everybody who doesn't live in New York City, uh, it just all seems to run together. Yeah, or you're super familiar with the city, and then you can criticize it for being inaccurate. Even, like, you, either way, they're, they're on the what train? No, what? That doesn't go through. <laughs> you know what movie? Not sh- this time of day. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know what movie should have been in this season? Godzilla '98, because then it just, <laughs> just would have just, completed the <laughs> just more yeah, New York, just more New York City. Uh, anyway, yes, this this film is is very much a, a love letter to uh, to New York City. It in, it includes a a sequence in a hotel uh, simply named the Plaza Hotel, which I, is that a is the Plaza just the Plaza? Is that a, an actual hotel in New York City? It, that seems a little too on the nose. I will check. Okay, because it seems like every movie has a the Plaza, and it all has the same like late seventeenth century style decor. And, you know, is just overly ornate and one wonders is like, do they not have modern hotels in New York City? I feel like they would have to. Well, yeah, no, of course they do. It's it's a ritzy over the top. Like the average Joe does not stay at the plaza. It's a five star hotel on Fifth Avenue. Uh-huh. 
So it's yeah. it's real. It is real. Yeah. Oh, it's okay. a it's a building you often see in a skyline, I think adjacent to Central Park. Well, and I I know that that sequence overlooks Central Park, which okay, so they got that semi film or uh, world accurate. Yeah, I can so appreciate good job. that. Good job. Uh, you also saw the Ghostbusters building briefly in the distance. Yes. One shot. Uh huh. <laughs> no, I I yeah, I know that building. Like yeah, every time you see those like two uh-huh. two Art- little nubs on the building, you're like ah. the Art Deco style, and yep. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So it could happen to you is a romantic maybe comedy. Yeah, I, I think it's billed as a romantic comedy. I'm like, there's some funny bits, but I'm like, I'm on the fence about the comedy part. I am too, and I I think part of that is I wonder how much of the comedy sold better in 1994 than it does today. Maybe because yeah, this movie is super dated. It uh, is. So it could happen to you. It's about a New York cop who wins a lottery. And he decides to split the winnings with a down-on-her-luck waitress at a diner. Um, Loosely inspired by a real story. It was something that happened in the 80s was, um, you know, there was a winning lottery ticket and it was split between these two uh, couples. The difference is there was no romantic entanglements. They've been friends for ages and stuff. And uh, if I remember the story... Uh, right, they each like picked a few numbers, okay, to go on the ticket. Got and it. And so, it was a much more equitable arrangement, I think. Okay, I, that that makes sense. Um, yeah, you'd mentioned that this was loosely based on a, a a true story, and I was like, I think I'm just gonna let Josh unveil that one because I was not aware of like the. Yeah, <laughs> no, but it like basically there was a real event happen somewhere, and be like. This is a great story opportunity. Imagine if someone did this, but then X Y Z ensued. Uh, so it, it it departs from uh, the from reality, from real life events. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and it, you know you, you did a good job doing our um, one sentence or two sentence summary. Uh, this is another movie that I think um, doing the the short summary leaves out a frightening amount of context um, because, like the the backstory to him sharing his lottery winnings with with this woman is that he's apparently you know in in universe the last truly nice guy in the world where he <laughs> was like missing enough money to tip her on a cup of coffee and is like okay I'll come back tomorrow and either give you double the tip or half of what I win in the lottery and then he actually makes good on on, on that like it's one of those things that you feel like and it's even set up that way like uh, Bridget Fonda um y- Yvonne even goes yeah I, I like as he's headed out the door, she's like, "Okay, I guess I'll never see you again." And you're like, "Yeah, that's probably what most people would do is they don't have the, enough money to tip, so they skip out and never return to that place." <laughs> right. But no, he comes back with, "Hey, I uh, turns out I, I I won the lottery." Yeah, and he still gives <laughs> her the choice. Like before, he like it's true reveals. Yep. He's just like, "Do you want double the tip or do you want the lottery winnings?" Yep. And she's you know going for broke. At that point, she's just like she she doesn't expect to get anything out of it. Right. Exactly. Still, you know, hey, let's let's do this. Go ahead. <laughs> um, her character is weird to me because she alternates from being like a super pessimistic, like sarcastic cynic. Yeah. And then these bouts of like happy hopefulness. 
it I, seems like that is the conflict of her character. Yeah, she she was interesting because in um, in certain kinds of ways, she reminded me of uh, um, the alien from L.A. Uh, why why am I blanking on on the character from Alien from L.A. Our very first episode, Wanda. Wanda, thank you. In certain kind of ways, she reminds me of Wanda because she has that exactly what she's like this almost. I think it's especially in the the opening scene with her where she is, you know, talking to the judge and being like, here is everything that has gone wrong in my life that led me to this point where I can't pay XYZ credit card bill. And it it very much strikes me as Wanda on the beach talking about everything that's gone wrong that led to to her in in the breakup. And then, uh, yeah, there are these wild swings back and forth between being a genuinely hopeful human being and somebody who is just like completely torn down by the world. She is tonally the most unbalanced character in the movie, which I actually think makes her kind of human. Um, Mm -hmm. I I, I appreciate that she's not um, super linear or or one dimensional because that is my major gripe with uh, Nick Cage's character is he is, I I, I can't believe I'm going to say he's too nice. He is he, he's nice to an unbelievable point. So I'm going to talk about the opening of this movie, okay. uh, where they just kind of go all in talking about what a good guy cop Nick Cage is in New York. Yeah, and I'm like, right away I was like, oh, this is super dated. I I, I know I was like, I'm going to need to leave my personal politics out of this one because <laughs> no, but you have a, a lot of times in in media. Um, up to a certain point, mm-hmm. uh, your cops were either just like completely bumbling idiots, right, or they were like a super kind-hearted servant of the community, uh, <laughs> which is a nice dream. And I'm sure there might still be some like that, but the perception of that is is woefully skewed. Yes, uh, but at least in 1994, uh, Charlie was a good-hearted beat cop who delivers a baby. <laughs> On the bus. He delivers the the baby. Okay. I thought it was comical when he helps the blind guy cross the busy street. (laughs) I was like, that's over the top, but that's funny. But then he delivers a baby. Yeah, it's the the blind guy crossing the street is such a cartoon moment. (laughs) You know, it's it's so like, it's exactly what you are built up to believe in, like the, the leave it to beaver era you know in like the 1950s like this is what police officers do is that you know they they swirl their their stick their nightstick and they you know uh help elderly people who can't see cross busy intersections um and then yeah we cut to the baby being delivered also it would be a few years later but it was still in the late 90s men in black has a sequence where a baby is delivered on the road. Was there just like a shortage of hospitals in the the mid nineties that babies were being delivered like in transit all over the place? What what, what was going on in that? that it, it probably says something to the socioeconomic status of New York <laughs> in the nineties. Probably does. Yeah, you know, <laughs> cops were delivering babies on buses. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, yeah. So um, we get this opening. Uh, uh, montage of him just being a nice guy yes and then we see uh angel isaac hayes character yeah uh who is he's your narrator he's breaking the fourth wall right uh he said his name is angel i'm like oh boy and ryan he's wearing a tie with a lobster on it it's it this is why i was like it got too close 
it got, it got way too it close. got way too close, it and I was like, too close to simply irresistible. That's why I was like, why why are we reducing this movie? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I, like we said, no magic. A no lot magic, of yeah. um, coincidence and convenience. Lots of happenstance, yeah. But there's no uh, no magic. Very grounded movie. Uh, we're inter- introduced to Yvonne uh, basically in court, mm-hmm. in, in, in debtor's court there. And this is also over the top. Uh, Yvonne never stops waitressing. <laughs> like yeah, she's talking with the judge appealing her case he starts like coughing and hacking up she pours him a water and asks him if there'll be anything else I, the bailiff would have like just dove on her like you don't reach into the the judge's space like that and but it's it, it is it, it's in context it's very funny right because like it you is. said she never stops <laughs> she it, it's never her stops it's her identity is she right. is a waitress she is what she is she's the waitress yeah uh, so that was kind of funny. And then uh, we're introduced to Charlie's wife, Muriel, played by Rosie Perez. Uh-huh. I know what Rosie Perez can do. I have yeah. seen her in other things. And I could not stand her in this movie, which I think was part of the point because she's clearly the bad guy. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I wish there had been more nuance in that so you could, like, struggle a little bit to to make you think – more but these characters are very like they stay in their lane they're like here's your good guy here's your trotted upon person here's your bad guy yeah like i i agree and rosie perez's like character her characterization just the way that she presents in this movie i think is part of what bothered me about this film so much is I, i i just genuinely did not like her and um in in a very like and it wasn't like uh you know Bane taking down Gotham City kind of, you know, I don't like the villain. Um, I just didn't, I, I did not want the character on screen at any point. Like, I I, I thought that she was just unpleasant. And, um, I mean, they 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 do set out, I, I'll give them credit for, uh, for character consistency. They set out her motivation in her opening dialogue when she's talking about, I'm, I'm a person that needs money. And I'm sure that there are people who exist like that in the world. And that's, that's all she's concerned about is just, but it also, to me, introduces a, a an internal conflict in this film where, I again, I, I think it buckles under its own internal logic. Why would she marry a beat cop in the first place if this is who she is and she knows who he... Because they even have an argument at one point in their, their marriage where he, he says, this is who I am, you know that. And she's like... And he, I think he says, like, I'm not going to change. And she's like, I, I know. And it's what leads to them eventually getting into a, a divorce in the film. Why would she ever entertain the idea of a life with uh, a beat cop who lives in Queens? Yeah, they don't go into her backstory super much. Like, he has a scene where he kind of tells how he met her and right. how they kind of came to be a little bit. But they don't dig into su- too much of what her backstory is. And I suppose he was a leg up from whatever life she had before him. That's And then he just didn't climb more because he is he could be more advanced in his career sure he is content with where he is but he could do more right uh he just doesn't want to and i think there's a lot of relationships where like you just you're attracted to ambition yeah attracted to that drive to do more and achieve more just hers translates into more money 
Right. I would have enjoyed her slightly more if she just didn't do the voice she did. You know, you just brought up Bane. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, yeah, it's the voice. Her over the top, like New York Hispanic voice. Yeah. It was it was too much for me. Yeah. It was Every a lot. time she opens her mouth, I was like, fuck. Because <laughs> it's almost a caricature of it that is. accent. It is, and it's it, it that character aspect. You know, one of the things that we talk about, like this movie feeling really dated. Um, I found myself asking at several points throughout this movie, "Do we think that this film could be made today?" And in its current state, I I'm unsure about that. And I think I, you definitely could, I, absolutely. I, but you would need different performances. I I think that yes, I think that her performance in particular is something that would not go over well with audiences. No. No, it would it would have to be a little more, a uh, little more dimensional. Yes, I think. Yeah. Um, also, Charlie has a black best friend. He does. Uh, another parallel to Simply Irresistible. <laughs> your main, your main character has a black best friend, who again in this movie I think he steals scenes. I actually think he's one Wendell of the more Pierce hundred percent. Yeah, he he is one of the more subtly delivered on characters in this movie. He shows dynamic range. I was like, he's fucking great. I want more of him. <laughs> yeah, he actually has. Yeah, he has a lot of substance for being a side character. Yes. Uh, just even in his scenes, uh, I especially love when he's trying to figure out what to do with the winnings. And this is a, sh- he, Nick Cage's character, Charlie, he's having is, the debate. Yep. Like, should he... T- actually go and tell Yvonne that he did win the lottery and split $4 million with her, you know. Mm-hmm. Wendell Pierce's character, I forgot his name, uh, but he is down his own rabbit hole right here. <laughs> he is having his own daydream of, you know what I love? He's not mad at all that his best friend is not giving him any of the money. Right. At, at, at no point. No. I mean, Bo. Bo. Charlie later gives Bo season tickets to the Knicks. Right. Which puts him over the moon. He is so ecstatic about that. But Bo wants to buy the Knicks. Uh-huh. And he wants to play starting forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, I feel you. I was a forward when I did like summer basketball camps. I wasn't very good. Um, <laughs> that's to be expected. Um, but yeah, he just kind of goes through this whole thing to where Charlie's like, are you even listening to me? And then he's just like, look, you're going to do what you're going to do. You're you. You know what you're going to do. He's like, right. I'm not wasting my time trying to debate <laughs> this with you. I'm telling you what I would do with the money. <laughs> and and, and this thing, that is one of the more realized scenes in that movie is is Charlie having this like he, almost heated debate with himself and Bo knowing there is nothing that I can add to this conversation. So I'm just going to I I I'm going to talk about what I would <laughs> if I had won the lottery what I would do. <laughs> um yeah. I wish there had been a little more uh Bo in the movie, but I I I like when he's there. Yeah, he's he's great. The they they go eat at the diner that apparently they've never had before because Bo's hungry as hell. And it's another <laughs> five blocks to Burger King. Fuck Burger King. Burger King's gross. So I was I was just saying that almost feels like I, I can't tell which happened with, with Burger King because it's he specifically says the Burger King is another five blocks. And I'm trying to decide if they wanted money from Burger King and didn't get it, so they thought they would like throw a line in to snub them. Or Burger King really was a corporate sponsor, and they're like, well, we've got to get the name of them in here somehow. And that was where they they decided to... I'm thinking the latter. Yeah. 
but you know, he tries to like cut in line. <laughs> oh, yeah. like, he's like, hey, very important cop business. Don't do that. <laughs> to give it the lottery ticket. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do that. Um, whereas in the in the real story, in, in like the real events, um, I think it was a diner that was like frequented by, okay. by cops. Like this was like a cop diner. Uh, Yonkers his, cops. His uh, his order is hysterical as well. He wants the classic cheeseburger and then a slice of blueberry pie while he's waiting. While he's waiting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I actually wrote a note in here because uh, Charlie orders the meatball sandwich, yeah. and she's like, "Oh, you're very brave to get the meatball sandwich." I was like, "Why is the burger safe, but the meatball, but the meatball. is questionable?" <laughs> Is it not the same meat? It might not be the same meat. I don't know. Was the meatballs like made like a week ago? I like I don't know. I have questions, but I'm like, it's okay to eat the burger, not the meatball sandwich. Not the meatball sandwich. The meatball sandwich very questionable. Very questionable, Josh. Yeah. Um, the New York Post also is all over this movie. Um, this was an interesting choice to me, and it, it is so much so that I'm like, who is behind this film? Because it feels like whoever, because I don't know who owns the New York Post anymore. I, I, I mean, or, or back then, it's Rupert Murdoch now. I think, isn't it? Isn't that he owns the Post? Or he's like buddies with the guy who owns the Post. Um, hang on, who owns? I should have looked this up. Uh, yeah, it's Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. Well, that's unfortunate. Although it, it actually fits with all the uh, headlines, that is. The what, <laughs> and that's the thing. It, they 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 don't really shy away from the New York Post being the New York Post in this movie. Like it's very tabloidy, and uh, they they lean into that. Um, but I also, I again, I it, it, for me, it calls into question as like who who is behind this film that the New York Post is like very front and center. It's the paper that everyone in New York reads, Apparently. which is fair. Anytime I'm coming out of New York, like flying out of New York, uh, there's always at least like three people that have a New York Post. Yeah. It's a cheap paper. Maybe that's what it is. Because yeah. it, in my mind, I'm like, why not, you know, the WSJ or the New York Times? Um, and I, I guess those are those are papers that just cost a little bit more. Maybe it's it is the... The fact that the New York Post keeps its prices down, it's, again, appealing to the everyman because this movie is very much aimed at the everyman, the everyman and basically the great everyman fantasy that you are the one in a trillion that strikes it on the lottery and all of the little problems of your life go away. If there was any magic at all in this movie, it is economic magic. It, it is economic magic. I wish I had a breakdown of how much money Charlie actually spends. Oh, yeah. I feel like they went through their money. Right, and that's a, I, I feel like. I mean, a million dollars in 94 would, I mean, so they each get two, but, you know, I think there's, anyway, I think it probably went a little bit farther than it does now, you know, 30 years on in 2023. Um, but, at the same time, they they do seem to spend it quick, <laughs> and yes. they do some extraordinary things with it. Yeah, well, Muriel is spending left and left and right. She oh goes my god, to all the high end uh, shopping places. She has their house, like their their apartment, completely renovated. She has a portrait of herself commissioned. Love that. Yeah. That's uh, a very like rich narcissist thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> 
the the home renovations actually I was one of those moments that I I, I was like this is this is a weird choice because I would have expected her instead to be like we're buying a new house like I what I was expecting to see happen was like the moment in Rocky where he's walking down the street and he's like this is a nice house I think we should buy this house you know like somebody who's completely undisciplined with money because they've never had it before um just being like I can buy whatever I want yeah because she hates queens right that's the other I was like why would she stay there she makes it clear she doesn't like me in there yeah again it's another little inconsistency in this film that I'm like ah there's just there's a lot about this movie that uh, that really grated on me. I, I here, I'll be honest. I uh, I had to reflect on. I was like, am I just a cold-hearted cynic that this movie has like zero effect on me? That I'm actually annoyed and bored most of the time that I'm watching it. The ending bored, does no. The bored is not your fault. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot of like Nick Cage is surprisingly wooden in this movie for what we know that he can do. For the various weird roles we have seen this man perform over his career, uh, this is a very wooden performance. Nick Cage definitely has two settings. It's either his volume is either at two or eleven, um, and this was a two. You know, like he he had turned himself away. Like I think of the movie Raising Arizona, where he it plays a similarly like just nice guy calm easygoing just trying to you know make make it through life basically while all this wacky shit is happening around him and he's he, he, i think he's a little bit more nuanced in raising arizona but similarly is just very one note um or you get a willie's wonderland performance where he is you know beating the crap out of uh, demonic animatronics um and is completely dancing with a pinball machine um I, I don't know that he knows how to play around with variability in between two or eleven, and uh, yeah. this was this was a two. I I prefer uh, I think I prefer Face Off Nick Cage. Okay, to, yeah. <laughs> to yeah, this it, one. Speaking of, this is something that I thought uh, interestingly pulled focus in this movie, and I think it's because they um, they go a long way to highlight it with Stanley Tucci. Uh, so Nick Cage is clearly in like con air physique. Like this is a, for Nick Cage, he is pretty built. You know, he's, yeah. he, he looks really strong in this movie. Stanley Tucci is just coming off of, uh, undercover blues and is jacked as shit. And I'm like, Whoa. he looks good. <laughs> I was like, why do we have these unbelievable physiques in this movie? Weird, uh, weird cameo from stanley tucci yeah, it's has, a really has like three cameo. scenes um but he delivers on each one i love that <laughs> stanley tucci is the guy that's playing yvonne's estranged uh husband husband yeah <laughs> and he does i was like is this where this whole thing originated where he's calling her on the phone she's like oh you heard i won the lottery and he's he kind of hits her with the <laughs> that's crazy you won like that that high pa- high pitched super innocence thing you won something <laughs> he gets so high i love it I, the man's a treasure uh any role he's ever done i'd like he still wasn't enough to save transformers 4 but he went a long way toward helping it uh, but yeah, yeah it's like young Stanley Tucci, which I was like, I don't know if it ever happened, but it should have. He and Elias uh, Cotius should have done a brothers like heist movie together back oh in the nineties. 
God, they definitely should have. They could have. It yeah, would've, it would have worked. Yeah, um, that that's that's something we were robbed of. Yeah, the, the the whole exchange with them in the apartment and that he he ends up stealing the nuts. It was like such a <laughs> such a thing about the nuts. Now, if you have a thing that big of macadamia, that's expensive. That's a lot. I well, yeah, and and I know that Yvonne says that she maintains certain elements even though she's dirt poor. She's like I always have Miracle Whip and apparently she always has way too many macadamia nuts. Well, that's you know that that that's her version of like extravagant spending on herself, I guess. That's true. Yeah. She has the weird moment with the uh, with the cab driver, where she the, the the cab guy he can't split a twenty. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know Charlie's character would have been like, okay, well then you know keep the whole twenty, right? Uh, you know, and she's not willing to do that. Yep. But is like, you have to dissect that moment. Is like, is she just? being stingy with the money or is she just she still has like poor person mentality and doesn't realize that she could let it go right and be fine yeah but she's still like clinging to every there's there's great commentary about uh news media uh that i think is relevant today and how we chase stories right down to the the lotto win like yeah the, the the conference there where the 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 award ceremony i guess where Mm -hmm. they go take a picture of all the winners and all this stuff and they all talk to the different winners and oh here's an interesting hook this guy is splitting the ticket this will this will sell this is a story and just everybody's like f everyone else (laughs) you know this is where the story is Right, yeah, and they start, yeah, because it, it, it presents them, like, combing through the winners, like, where where is the most profitable story for us? You know, what, what, what can we really sell to people regarding who won the lottery? And then the New York Post runs with it for, like, the whole year or so. <laughs> yeah, what it's is... it's always like, lotto cop does this, lotto what, waitress does this. What is the time horizon on this movie, do we think? Because I, I thought a couple of weeks... No, it's it's got to be over the course of maybe under a year, but definitely like longer because he gets okay. injured and recovers That's from tr- it. She has time to buy and overhaul the diner and then the, the diner, diner yep. to close and then to eventually reopen. Yeah. Um, so, OK, then these are these are two elements that we do need to to break down. Um, one the uh, the actual divorce proceedings between Charlie and Muriel at the end i question at that point like they make it seem like all the money is still there like it's barely been spent and i'm like it, if it has if if we've been going on this long that money is long gone especially at the rate that they were spending um we'll come back to that point too when he's injured um this this scene seems so out of place in the rest of the movie because the the way that they handle the robbery is so cool and collected and like very just aware uh you know like he's like we suddenly see him be super cop like he puts together that the the this you know korean shop owner is being uh robbed based on just context clues that he picks up and uh it's actually i think it's a really well done scene it's the best scene of the film in my I opinion a hundred percent agree but it's so out of place with this movie <laughs> and another moment where wendell pierce as Bo shines <laughs> he's like, yeah. charlie comes out and he's like 
our Korean guy is getting robbed. It's like, how can you tell? He's like, well, he said his wife was home sick. She's like, that bitch would work if she was dead. If she was, if she was <laughs> like, dead. and he gave us the coffee for free. He's like, ah, he is being robbed. He is being robbed. <laughs> <laughs> it's just handled so comically. Like the the whole scene is actually handled very comically, and um, it's. I guess kind of nice because if it was too much of an intense scene, it would be very out of place with the rest of the movie. Um, but it also ties into a larger problem I have with the movie, where there's a lot of dead air scenes. Okay. Where I think oh. I think if simply Irresistible gave some of their soundtrack to <laughs> "It Could Happen to You," you wouldn't notice. Instead, and it would benefit both films. <laughs> yeah, because there is a distracting amount of music in uh, "Simply Irresistible," <laughs> like just a constant under. It, it reminds me of um, the Family Guy bit where they're talking about the mob movies and the the distracting trumpet, where yeah. there's just like a constant like tone in the background. In the yeah. background. <laughs> yeah, that you're like chill with that, and, and you're you're right. Uh, it could happen to you. Has completely the opposite problem where there's just empty space where it feels like there there needs to be a little bit more yeah so the 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 robbery is you know again seems kind of out of place but i would argue i guess it shows that you know despite him winning the lottery he's still still wants the same guy he's still doing his job protecting the people he cares about uh and set up a plot point where he is giving away more of their money uh to the the cop relief fund or whatever yes yeah um Which again, I like when I start thinking about okay, maybe I'm thinking about this movie too realistically, but I'm like he's gonna have medical bills from you know the, his injury, and the, I I just I I I wondered about it in the scene, but then I now the more that we talk about this movie, the more I'm like, how long is this the space between him winning the lottery and and the end of the movie? Like what? It, how long is this uh, this film supposed to take place over? Because it just seems like they would have gone through the money by then. It, again, at the rate that they were spending, I I don't see how they have anything left over by the end of this film. Well, and I think that's why Yvonne had to like shut down the diner, right? Is because like she couldn't. Yeah, you know, she had to send that off. She couldn't afford it anymore because of the freaking court case. Mm-hmm. So so shitty. <laughs> yeah, and this is another. Um, <clears throat> This is another point, like, I, I, I do wonder, I'm sure there are people like this in the world, uh, but I think where, like, I really just, I already did not like Muriel as a character, her portrayal in the courtroom sequence seems so petty and so, um, like, over-the-top, uh, like, I don't, I don't know if I want to use the word evil, but the idea that she would, in her divorce, not only come after his money, but also come after the money that he gave to Yvonne, I was like, that just seems, like, disgustingly heartless. And, uh, again, I guess I'm sure that there are people like that in the world, but I, I was waiting for some sort of a redemption where it was her being like, I'll just take, you know, the, the millions that, I, that, that he and I had and, and walk away. Yeah, no, she wants it all. Right. She has she has big plans that fortunately do not pan out for her. <laughs> it plays out off screen, but you're like, she ends up with nothing and living with her mom, like right back where she started before Charlie. Seymour Castle as uh, Jack Gross is a hilarious, just like 
sub 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 character <laughs> but his his portrayal is just like you know the the multimillionaire magnate who will literally do and screw over anybody he can for a few extra dollars is uh he's he's pretty excellent i yeah i had a question about that millionaire cruise cuz i was like is this an actual thing and is this a thing that's where it's designed to basically pull a grift on new money like people who come into a bit of money where via inheritance or or a lot of winning where it's just you're you're presented you know but it's all just a big scam i i hate that i think that the answer to that is probably yes like i i think that could very much be a thing um yeah i don't know though I like I. I mean, I'm. <laughs> I'm not a millionaire, so <laughs> I can't tell you. Yeah, Josh, we we have the cruises every uh, Thursday afternoon. And <laughs> yes, if you don't pull off at least one Ponzi scheme, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> the uh, oh, I'm gonna go back to the lob- the, the the robbery scene because oh yeah, go for it. Yep. Uh, this is a case of like something that's happening in the background that you like. It's something you would notice if you watch. A few times. Okay. Uh, after Charlie saves everybody. Right. And he passes out. He's been shot. And the other cops arrive on the scene. Yeah. There's one shot you watch. There's one cu- cup that comes running across and then like goes into a slide where it looks like he's <laughs> slipped. <laughs> it's it's the classic. The stormtrooper bangs his head on the door. Exactly. I was, yeah. like, I was like, did nobody, nobody notice that this guy almost ate it <laughs> in the background of the scene? This is awesome. <laughs> it just he action heroes his way into the movie and then just zoom straight yeah. on through. I gotta call out the uh, cinematographer on this one, buddy. Like this is your job to notice uh, stuff like this in your shots. Caleb Deschanel, a uh, little bit of a of a Nepo baby situation in this movie, by the way. Ah, yeah, because Caleb Deschanel, he was the uh, cinematographer. Okay, on this movie of the Deschanel dynasty. Yes, because his daughter, Emily Deschanel, has a cameo in this movie. She's the one that throws the paint on Muriel oh, when she comes out. When she comes, yeah, out of the, yeah. with the... Uh, Pre, now, pre-bones. Uh, <laughs> pre-bones Deschanel. <laughs> pre-bones Deschanel, yeah. Well, shit, I... Uh... I mean, I, I'd say I want to go back and, and see that scene again just to, to look for her, but I... You would almost have to frame by frame to recognize okay. her because the scene just moves so quick. It doesn't it, say it moves very fast. It is one of the funnier scenes, I, I think, is when she comes out with this luxury fur coat and Man, immediately runs just, into Peter. She's just born again after every store. Uh, yeah, I... <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> uh, she's gross. That talking about is, the yeah, talking about the Plaza uh, Hotel calls back another New York movie, uh, Home Alone. Home Alone. Two, was, yep. in New York. Was he at the same hotel? Was it also I, the Plaza? This is why I was he at the was like, Carlton. This is why I'm suspicious of the Plaza being an actual hotel because it seems like it pops up so often that I'm like, it. it there's no this. It's got to be just like a. Uh, like a a facsimile. He is also at the plaza. That's what I thought. Yeah. In, so in Home Alone. So this is that, a real. Okay. This begs questions. Uh, <laughs> where the f was Tim Curry's character? Where was Tim Curry? Where was Tim Curry's? More importantly, where was Donald Trump? And where? Well, he was in the. Was he in the hotel or was he in the the? I thought he was in like the Macy's or whatever. Oh, maybe he was. I thought he was in the hotel. Yeah. Okay. Not important. Don't gotcha. bring him into this. This movie's, <laughs> this movie's met enough. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, this movie is meh. <laughs> yeah, so the, another 90s movie that we're like, let's talk about the Plaza Hotel and how just over the top it is. Uh, the whole Plaza Hotel scenes are very awkward to me. I, I, I think they, they feel awkward because maybe this goes back to Nick Cage just having a wooden performance in this movie. The romance between him and Yvonne I don't think sells until maybe the last five minutes of the movie. Like, I just never... Agreed. I never get any sense of, like, on-screen chemistry or magnetism between them. Um, and, I like, I, I was aware that they were supposed to be falling in love because that's what the plot wanted us to think. Um, but I just... I did not get anything out of them. And the Plaza Hotel scenes are, are, are where I think that's the most painfully obvious. I, I feel like I could have done without it. Yeah, it, it makes me wonder very much, um, you know, because movies are, are filmed out of sequence. Like, were some of these like the first things that they filmed and they were still like trying to get to know each other as actors? And so they just had not had time to develop a uh, a chemistry or, or what? Yeah, perhaps. Like, Bridget Fonda does a very good job at being a very awkward character, like very uncomfortable <laughs> in her skin yeah. kind of character. She does, she does great. And I was like, where she was around for a while and then she just disappeared. She did kind of vanish, yeah. Uh, you know, another uh I guess you could say another Nepo baby. Um Yeah. You know, cuz she's from the she's from that Fonda dynasty. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but she uh no, she just like left the industry. Yeah. In like early 2000s, she was just she was done. Actually, she I I was looking up yesterday to kind of see where she was and uh she was very recently spotted out in public. You want to know who broke this story? The New York Post. The New York Post. <laughs> oh my god! I don't know him. if they broke the story, but they were one of the like first like newsy uh, headlines that popped up on my of search course. results. Was <laughs> <laughs> the New York Post? I was like, well, this is a beautiful symmetry. Yeah. Oh, fucking wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> but no, she's just you know living her life, doing her own thing as a private person, married to Danny Elfman. So that's kind of it's kind of no awesome. kidding. You wouldn't have thought. No. What an interesting pairing. What an interesting pairing. That that is an interesting pairing. Uh, now I want to know what she met him on the set of, because it wasn't this. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is not Danny Elfman's uh, type of music. No, I I, I uh, almost wonder if it was Army of Darkness. <laughs> <laughs> funny. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't dig into their their personal lives much. I, I'm I'm terribly curious if he did the music on Army of Darkness now because I know that she like is in it for thirty seconds. Um. Anyway, anyway, that's that's too funny. Yeah, I she is she's somebody who um, you know, was I I think a perfectly serviceable actress in in the mid nineties. Uh, I I I can't I can't think of anything that I've seen her in that I was like your performance is egregious and you need to go away. Um, like I, I thought she was, I just thought she was good, and uh, yeah, she just sort of vanished. Yeah, so, you know, good for her. I, I respect people who like do that thing, and then they're done with the business. And you, like, you think it was a, a, a conscious decision? She was like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm over it." Maybe. Yeah. Uh, you have a lot of uh, actors that they struggle to find that balance with like a home domestic life and the the life of a, a Hollywood star. It's, you know, in a very meta way, it's interesting then that the pairing in this movie are uh, Bridget Fonda and Nick Cage, because you have Nick Cage who makes, you know, 76 movies a year, 
and has been for you know the last uh 250 years i think like the, roughly yeah and then bridget fonda who had a very intentional you know focused career and and then left when she did i i it's just it, it's it's interesting to see uh two actors whose paths would so would so diverge around this time um because she would only be in the industry if i'm looking at her imdb for another few years after this and nick cage is still just pumping them out yeah i think she stopped in like 2002 2001, yeah 2002 somewhere around there um but i mean let's look at this she's in a movie playing a character that just gets ragged by the new york post okay yeah Bridget is married to danny elfman who did the score for spider-man in 2002 <laughs> which features a guy who runs a tabloid newspaper called the daily bugle that just rags on their main character all day long coincidence Probably. i i think no. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, yeah, probably. probably the Daily Bugle is absolutely modeled after the New York Post. Okay, so a hundred percent is. But hang on, now I am more wondering about this Army of Darkness connection because that was Bruce Campbell, who does appear in, uh, you know, the the Spider-Man movies with, uh, That's true. you know, Danny Elfman, and I mean, I'm I'm telling you, this is where it all this is where it all comes. These are the these are the things that tie it all together. God, I have so many questions now. I I, I do too. Um, more about the meta of this movie and its connection to the real world than actually about the film itself, because like <laughs> this, this movie was just it is I, again. I like to to come back to this point. I, I I was terribly underwhelmed by this film. I I I had to give it credit um, in that I thought the ending was really nice. I was like, I kind of enjoyed the ending of this movie. It's probably the most unbelievable part of the film, but for whatever reason, the ending actually cracked me. Um, Everything about else about this film, though, I was just like, I, I don't know. Like, it just, it never. To me, this film never feels like it arrives. Hmm. You know, like it, it, it feels like there's a constant state of tension where I'm waiting for something in the movie to happen. That I, I, it just, it never has its moment. No, I, I think the, I guess the maybe the the moment is them when, winning the lottery. No, I, I would say when Angel publishes the piece about them and New York sends their support. Right. And that is, that is the pop, but that is the end of the movie. I know. I know. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's it. Also, <laughs> let's, let's take a moment and just discuss Isaac Hayes's character angel for a moment because he is this omniscient narrator. And so at first you're like, this is somebody who exists outside the bounds of space time and is just delivering the story to us, right? In his wonderful Isaac Hayes' voice. So much in the movie, I'm like, is he an actual fucking angel? I swear to God. Well, and then we're building up to this idea that, you know, because especially with him as, you know, dressed as the homeless man at the end, you're like, oh, so this is, he's, he inhabits different bodies. And it turns out he actually is a fucking angel. Followed by... Oh no, he's an undercover paparazzi photographer who will do anything to get the shot and he's been stalking these characters. That's who his who who he actually is. <laughs> that's where the story is. Right. But he, he then you realize okay, he's a guy that's just he goes all over New York. He right. sees everything. He sees everything. He sees it all. Yeah. Uh so he gets the actual makes sense that he would get the actual story of what's up with these guys. And it's nice and shows you a very, uh, if it's that theme of like New York solidarity kind of thing where all the, the 
the blue collar workers of New York right. uh, come together and uh, chip in to help rescue Charlie and Yvonne yes. from their financial hardships. And, and that's the part of the movie. I, like, I really do enjoy that moment. I think it's I, I, because um, I think part of, I, I guess, my struggle with the movie is Charlie is built up as the nice guy, the nice guy, the nice guy. And it's, it just feels like things are uh, people are just always taking a shit on him. And I and it's nice to see him have his karma returned, I guess, at, at the end of the movie where like, yeah, New York kicks in five bucks a person, I guess. And they end up with six hundred thousand dollars to to just live comfortably on, um, which is it's, it's great. It's it, it is a it is a good moment. But that I think was like I said, I, I just kept waiting for this movie to arrive. And that's when I think it did. And that's what it ended. Yeah. Because well, this movie is, you know, it asks the question, what would you do if you won the lottery? Sure. Uh, we had this discussion on our other podcast ages ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, still haven't played the lottery. I know, yeah. But can I tell you, uh, $4 million, not enough. In today's, in today's, <laughs> in today's economy, economy with these yeah. egg prices. I was just going to say. <laughs> it's, not, it's not enough. Yeah, no, no, nah, it doesn't, doesn't quite get it done. Um, but, yeah, the... What's interesting is how people don't change. And maybe the argument is like money allows you to see who people truly are. That's that is a much deeper message than I got out of this film, but I do kind of like that. Yeah, I, I'm I'm trying, man. No, I'd say it was, that's I that's a much better try than I came up with because I <laughs> I I actually appreciate that idea. I'm I I think that that's that's probably um, if anybody was trying to sell a message in this film, that sounds like it. There's another movie i think it's just called the lottery ticket okay came out way more recently that i think is a more compelling uh film okay than this but this is a it's a perfectly mid film this is yeah this is classic nick cage Mm -hmm. uh, before he went all weird yeah and it could give you some perspective on how you like your nick cage do you like your nick cage a little grounded and stoic do you like him a little weirder do you like him batshit crazy? What do we think the pivoting point was? Like, because I don't know that he's done subtle in years now. So, like, when do we think he just decided, you know what, I'm just going to lean into completely unhinged? I, I don't know. And I won't say, not all his performances lately have been, like, unhinged. He's got some some solid ones in recent years. But I, I definitely would say uh, post-National Treasure 2. <laughs> Like he dabbles a little bit back in the day with with Con Air, with uh, Face Off, and uh, he was in The Rock, right? Um, He was, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 He's He's, uh, in fact, he he has um, he has my favorite line in that movie that I I think could apply to so many things in the world. It's when he he's telling Sean Connery about the (laughs) the chemical weapons, and he goes, "The moment you stop respecting this is when it kills you." Um, and I was like, that's a fucking great line. <laughs> but I'm like, he starts playing with stuff in that time frame. But I would say it's it's post-National Treasure. Okay. And uh, definitely right in that line there when he was like, I need money. Uh, I mean, he definitely, he, he definitely gets to a point where he's just like, you wonder what his spending habits have been that he just needed every rule like but he's not going to phone it in which is kind of cool because you know, he could he could 
he, he's got it's, a name recognition where it could be like, and this is Nick Cage, and he could just be like, yeah, I'm Nick Cage, and I'm gonna do this, whatever thing. Uh, but he, no, he commits. He really does to it. He was like, you don't have to, Nick. This movie pays like five thousand dollars. It's like total shit. He's like, no, no, I'm an actor. I'm gonna do this. All right, I, fine. I mean, you know, to that to that end. I gotta give him credit. Yeah, like he he never he never pulls his punches. He just he he just doesn't. He goes all the way. I just think he should be a little more judicious with uh, his choices. But you know, he's got a vast library, and this is probably a forgotten one. Nineteen ninety four, a nineteen ninety four movie. We discussed I, everything recently. that came out in ninety four. Yeah. Yeah, not everything could be a banger in 94 because people would have been bankrupt. You put this against Forrest Gump. Yeah, of course, Forrest Gump's going to win. Right. Yeah. Again, just a uh, like a I just all I did was uh, do a quick 1994 search. And I mean, you had like Stargate, The Mask, Interview with a Vampire, uh, Leon the Professional, which uh, I think was more commonly known as... um, I, now I can't remember. It's it's I I know it is Leon the Professional. It's it's a great movie. It's he plays a hitman. It's Natalie Portman's first role. Um, but oh. I, yeah, uh, um, that's a great that's a great movie. Um, True Lies came out in uh, in '94. Um, in in like kind of the the kids movie space, you had like Richie Rich and Little Giants, which I feel like are. Uh, Stone Cold, you know, children's classics, The Page Master, Legends of the Fall was 1994. Um, freaking uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was busy that year, Junior. I don't know if we can put that one in the, the classics of 94, but uh, it was also, I mean, it was the, the year of Clerks and Ace Ventura, and uh, it was The Crow, um, Speed, uh, I guess Stargate uh, was 94. A lot, a lot of recognizable film titles that, that year. Like yeah, ninety four, ninety five. It just uh, theater season was just kept nice. coming. Yeah. So th- there's chances are, uh, if you didn't see it, maybe your mom did. But uh, <laughs> ni- you know, it could happen to you. Perfectly fine movie. Could have been better. Uh, but there's some. There are some good performances in yeah. this movie. Whether you like the performance or not, that there are some good performances. Yeah. Even, it- even Rosie Perez's Muriel can't stand her but that's because she does it so well yeah yeah i i i think that uh bow is is the the performance that you come for in this movie that's that that is my opinion um he's yeah he's he's wonderful um yeah uh, wendell wendell pierce yeah he's he's great but uh i i just i I, rosie perez just and it's it's not her fault this is that you know they wrote this character in such a particular way and i just Oh God, I just couldn't. No, just, and that's why I say she does great with what they wanted her to do. That's it's true. Just painful on my ears. It's really painful. Oh my God, Charlie! <laughs> that's disgusting. God, just, just like dial it back. She's just so cruel to him. Ugh. Okay, so making this movie, yeah, today, because I yeah. think this is one where we're like, you can't prequel sequel this. No, uh, but we could reboot it. Yeah, you could reboot it. Yeah, you could take another look at this, and it could you, know, you would have to update it to reflect today's uh, culture and uh, political environment. Yeah, I was going to say, what job would you have him do? Because I don't know that 
kind-hearted police officer is going to go over well. I, I think that would be a challenge if you kept him as a police officer. Uh, that, that's why I was like, I, I don't know that you can. Um, I, 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 I think that you could probably get away with like an EMT or a firefighter or something like that. You know, still like some kind of emergency responder, um, but one that feels a little bit like it hasn't hasn't had the kind of um, you know glaring spotlight on it the way that that uh, the police department has. I would do a cab driver. Oh, interesting. Okay. Probably do a cab driver, and okay. uh, we can go ahead and check the DEI box on that. <laughs> uh, but a cab driver that meets a somebody—I don't know—I uh, still think Nick Cage should be in it. Nick Cage could play Angel. There you go. He'll be the narrator for this one. This all sounds very familiar. Listen, Might be once, a familiar story. Once upon a time. <laughs> uh. Yeah. Okay. All right. I, I I could I could be down with that. Um. Do we keep Yvonne as a waitress? Uh, I think the diner person is important. Like someone yeah. in the service industry like that. I I think would be good. Um. But we could jazz it up a bit. Make it a little more woke. It could be. <laughs> you know, it could be a man and another man. Oh. Okay. You know. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and maybe. The cab driver has been in a straight relationship, but it's not really who he is. Interesting. Uh, oh, and layers. Then, I know. I'm just really trying to. You're you're riffing some, here, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm here for it. <laughs> I'm here for myself. The, there was a there was a blink and you miss it thing in this movie. I don't know if you caught it. Okay. Um, what year did Philadelphia come out? That movie come out. Oh, uh, let me. Um, I'll find out for you real quick. But there is, there is a patron in the diner. 93. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so there's a there's a patron in the diner that you see she's very kind and sweet on. Um, it took me a couple of passes to be like, oh, he has he has HIV. AIDS. He has AIDS. Yeah. yeah. And I, he brings it up. Yeah. He, he mentions it in like another yep. scene, which I was like, wait, what? And that's why I had to go back um, because this is a character that they set that up. They introduced that. I'm like. We never go back to it. No, there, because uh, you mentioned how Stanley Tucci is only like in three scenes, and I, I'm still struggling to remember how he exits the movie because I feel like at, at a certain point he just vanishes. He has a like a, a narrated thing at the end, like of, he, you know, he okay. didn't get any money. He's stuck being a cab driver. I, I remember that, yeah. yeah, but like. There's no, there's literally no resolution with with him and Yvonne. Like it just, he he just sort of stops being there for a little while. And that there was another thing this movie I think struggled with a little bit was introducing some story elements that probably could have added a little bit more dynamicism to the film that just get abandoned. And I think that the one that you her her regular that you know is struggling with HIV. I don't know how else I would have wanted to see that developed, but I think it would have added a little bit more to uh, to the movie that that just it was missing. Yeah, you see him one more time after you establish that she's taken over the diner, right? Um, but then he just disappears yep. from the story, and I'm like, that would have been an extra layer of drama. Yeah, to have that subplot explored of like maybe trying to help this person, but this was early when people were not comfortable touching. The AIDS thing. That's why I wanted to ask when Philadelphia came out because that was a, a, the movie I think that really kind of like put it in people's face. Yep, ninety three, uh, the the AIDS crisis. Um, so it's it's very 
they wanted to acknowledge it, but kind of just like in a almost virtue signaling sort of way and not actually like deal with it because they're like, that's not where we want to focus. Right. <laughs> it's about a down on her luck white woman and her cop friend. The nice the nice police officer that comes in, orders pie, and then comes back with a two million dollar tip. Uh much much better story. Uh but yeah, in my in my reboot we would definitely go hard on these these subplots. And yeah. explore really explore character. Well, and and I guess that's the thing is, um, because there there is there's no character growth in this movie. I think that might be why this film feels so, um, like just I, I I hate to use the word boring, but it feels boring. It, the characters are totally static. We see their life situation change, but the characters themselves I don't feel like grow. There's there's no you know, there, there's there's nothing about them that I think they they become the better for, or like I I just think that they're totally flat the entire time. Maybe that's the statement the movie's trying to make, is that you know, people are who they are regardless of. I and even as a a cold hearted cynic, I think that's a bleak outlook on humanity. Even though these are two nice characters, I think it's it it's it's bleak to think that they would just still remain completely static like even down to you can't tell me that the the kind of shit that um uh charlie goes through with muriel would not in some way or another harden him a little bit or or and i'm not saying to the point that he'd be you know cruel to other people but wouldn't at least be a little bit more suspicious about things in life like i I, at least in the short term like you don't go through a litigious divorce like that where you know, the, the woman tries to come after you for all of your money and all the money that you gave away to somebody who is trying to make their, their life better. And you don't walk away with a slightly different opinion of, of what people can and should be. I mm, Who knows? Maybe Leaving Las Vegas is a sequel. <laughs> I, I choose to believe it, Josh. I, that's, that's the sequel you want, Ryan? I choose to believe it. <laughs> Leaving Las Vegas is watch the these sequ- movies back to back. Watch them back to back. <laughs> oh my god! Perfect. All right. Well, I feel better about this movie now. <laughs> All right. That uh, that's where we're going to leave you. On yeah. it could happen to you. It it could happen to you. Yeah. It, and it could happen to you guys. It really could. Uh, step one: you have to play. Got to play the lottery. Yep. There was a guy, have I told this story before? I don't know. There was a uh, guy in front of me at the 7-Eleven. Okay. He he just got like a scratch-off ticket. Oh, yeah. And he won $10,000. Whoa. $10,000. It's not a ton of money, but uh, it's, it's depending something. on where you're at, that yeah. matters. And this made this guy's day. He was just, he was so happy. There was a lot of expletives involved, but that's just how he celebrates. Uh, yeah, $10,000 right in front of me. And I was so mad because that could have been me. <laughs> that could have been me. I was like, hey, so happy for you. And mutter all the way back to my Hyundai Elantra. As, as, you, as you ask yourself, like, what, did I have any intention of playing the lottery today? <laughs> Absolutely not. Certainly right. not a scratch off. <laughs> exactly. That's not the point. <laughs> The point is, it could. It could. You know, that, that could have happened to me if I wanted to play the lottery and I bought the scratch. <laughs> I've gone through so many fortune cookies right now. 
that's a lot of lucky numbers. I, why why I are have, you not playing them? Why? Yeah. I can't be bothered. You know how much it costs to play the lottery? It's like 10 bucks, isn't it? Like for the Powerball? I don't know if it's that much. I, I, I feel like the, the Powerball, like the one that always goes up to like half a billion dollars or some shit like that, it's, it's, it's not a cheap ticket. Like no, I always thought of like... to pay for half I mean, a billion. Well, it's a big roll of the dice if that 10 bucks is the difference between a couple of gallons of milk and an egg. Or... I, don't, I, don't, I don't play for anything less than $1.2 billion. <laughs> You're like, then I'll jump in. Then I'm like, okay. The funny thing is, is that you actually have the best odds of winning when the uh, the um, jackpot is at its lowest, because it yeah, means of course, the fewest, less people are playing, l- less people yeah. have bought in. Yeah. So when you see those numbers start to go up, your your chances of winning actually are going down and down and down. Of course. So why even bother? Why? <laughs> I'm gonna my own reboot got be called. It'll never happen to me. That's the name <laughs> of my reboot. I thought I was approaching this movie cynically. <laughs> <laughs> It'll never happen. <laughs> Working title, this some bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it ships to theaters as. <laughs> Anybody found the file called this some bullshit? Turns out. It turns out it's the reboot of it could happen to you, but this it's this'll never happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it could happen to you, but it's written in the sarcastic font. Yes, with the uppercase, lowercase, uppercase, lowercase. <laughs> That's so bitter. That's perfect. No, I love that. I, I, I want that. I want that now. I want that movie. <laughs> Next week is our penultimate episode for season two. Yes, easily the wackiest uh, title of of all the movies we're gonna we're gonna watch this season. Girls, guns, and gambling. The three G's. The three G's. Um, it's a yeah. This is a weird movie. I really enjoy it. Um, yeah. We can debate whether or not it's a like a perfectly mid movie or maybe a, a little worse. Okay. Um, but I I don't know. I think it's it's perfectly enjoyable, and I look forward to discussing that with you, especially doing some uh, comparison contrast with a movie that I know that we both enjoy, Lucky Number Eleven. Lucky Number Eleven candidate. Yeah. Uh, I just went this route because I wanted to be contrarian. <laughs> no, and this this movie has um, I, I, one of the things that I'm, I'm excited about for this film is it has one of the str- most, like, most strangely unbalanced casts of ever any movie I've ever like. You have Powers Booth, Christian Slater, and Gary Oldman on one side, and then Dane Cook, Chris Kattan, and Helena Matson on the other. I'm like, who put this film together? <laughs> Uh, some wacky Australians, I think. I, I, it's, it is truly bizarre the, uh, the, the cast that they arrived at. But I'm, I'm very excited for it. <laughs> it's, I can't, I can't wait. Uh, so join us next time, folks. Thank you for listening. Indeed, we appreciate you. Uh, you know, do the, uh, do all the things. Uh, leave a like, uh, comment, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, we do these every week, uh, and uh, you know, we, we introduce you to movies that. Maybe uh, maybe you forgot about it. maybe maybe you forgot they were around. So especially in the year 1994, when every amazing movie ever, every came out. fucking great movie ever. Yep. Yeah, I don't think there's been a great movie since 94. I don't except, think there has, except the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Well, yes. that's that's yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Till next week, folks. See you then.